Welcome to the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan. This is episode 28, and my guest today is architect Dan Hickson. The idea of the itinerant architect traveling the land, spreading art from one village to the next, is irresistibly romantic. We envision Tom Bendelow going town to town setting his 18 stakes on Sunday, or Donald Ross traveling east to west and north to south by train to one of his 400 designs, or Robert Trent Jones proliferating signature courses by jet, or today, the global travels of Doak, Nicholas, Kyle Phillips, or Gil Hans. In truth, most architects are regional and work hard to gain foothold in a certain more local demographic. Dan Hickson, to this point, is associated exclusively with the Pacific Northwest. A native of Portland, Hickson came into golf first as a tour professional, then as a club professional. His true dream was to become a golf course architect, and he pursued that path by moonlighting on small area construction jobs. His big break came when he was hired to build Bandon Crossings, a much-admired public course caught in the high beams of nearby Bandon Dunes Resort. Wine Valley outside Walla Walla, Washington received national attention when it opened in 2009 for its wild look of rugged, windswept bunkering and large, exaggerated greens. Hickson then began working on the retreat and links at Sylvie's Valley Ranch in eastern Oregon, a project that's kept him busy for the last nine years. The resort's innovative 18-hole course, opened in the summer of 2017, can be played as two different courses going in alternate directions, playing one routing one day, then doubling back the other way the next. Hickson also built an additional nine-hole course there, as well as a new seven-hole extreme course that uses goats for caddies. Given this debut trifecta of Bannon Crossings, Wine Valley, and Sylvie's Valley Ranch, he's one of the business's most intriguing designers. We talk about his extensive work at Sylvie's Valley, the concept of reversible courses, the pros and cons of being a quote-unquote regional architect, and whether the creativity poured into his courses has opened new doors for him. One production note, our FaceTime connection started dropping out right from the beginning, so we had to switch to a conventional cell phone call, hence the tonal change in audio you might notice. But otherwise, it was an entertaining conversation, so let's get right to it. Here's me and Dan Hickson. Your father was a well-known and highly respected figure in the Northwest. He was a very good amateur player and later in life or later after that, a very well-known club professional. So you must have kind of grown up in the bathwater of golf. Is that that right? Oh, for sure. Um, Yeah. I mean, I started playing, you know, as, as young as you can, probably three years old, four years old. Uh, I'm the youngest child and I have uh, two older brothers and a sister. And yeah, dad was a golf pro. So I've been on a golf course, you know, really since day one. Oh, yeah. Right. Is he still alive? My dad is still alive. Yeah. He and my mother live in Eugene and, um, you know, they're getting up there. He's almost, he's approaching 90 and, uh, but yeah, he's doing okay. I'm, I see him fairly regularly. I started a project down in Eugene that, um, at Laurelwood, a municipality course down there that he was, he was an assistant there before I was even born. Oh, that's pretty neat. Yeah, so that's kind of that is fun. Yeah. So did you, did you get along with him when you were growing up? Oh yes. He, you know, actually, he, uh, my inspiration to become a golf course designer. He took me out to Eugene Country Club when they were rebuilding and reversing their golf course, and you know they took the first tee and turned it into the 18th green, and all the way around they went backwards basically, and and I was seven years old at the time, and. I didn't even really know golf courses were built in those days. I just thought they were there, you know, and 
but they were under construction and, or it was under construction. He showed me around and, and uh, I told him that day what I wanted to do and started making drawings and kind of figuring it out as a, just as a little kid, you know, fell in love with it. And, you know, 30 years later, I became a golf course designer. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that Robert Trent Jones did that renovation, didn't he? Yep. Yep. And I, I'm curious, you know, I've, you know, through the years I've wondered if he was around because I, I do kind of remember a guy walking around with a big thing of plans and people following him and all that, but I have no idea who it was. And, you know, yeah, I'm, like well, I said, I was so young. Yeah. What, so what year do you think that was? That was in 1968. 68. Yeah. By that time, he probably, you know, <laughs> Trent Jones was probably showed up at the beginning and once and then the end. Yeah. Yeah. It could, it could have been one of his, it could have been, I think, junior work there is what I think I've heard somewhere along the line. That would make sense. That would make sense. He was out yeah. on the West Coast at that time. Do you yeah. ever hear from the old timers? Like, was that a, was that a popular renovation to completely reverse the golf course or, you know, did that go over well? Oh, it did. It, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I think there's a little side that, you know, it was a Chandler Egan course and apparently the, the, the original course was quite nice. Um, it was one of the top in the state and, you know, there's a few people that have commented that it should be reversed back and all that. But I, I you know, for the most part, it's Eugene jumped up the list at that point and, uh, um, you know, is considered, you know, one of the best courses in the state. I was always kind of the best considered the best course in the state until Bandon came along. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure it got a lot more difficult after that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so did your dad pass down to you his love of cigars? Did you inherit the cigar gene? Um, you know, a little bit, but I I cut it off here about five or ten years ago, where I or about five years ago, where I just kind of quit. Uh-huh. Not that I ever smoked them like him. I mean, I would I would smoke occasionally, uh, you know, when I went fishing or mowing the lawn or something like that. But I never let myself get hooked. Yeah, I I never personally but, got into got into the cigars. I always made my mouth taste you know, terrible afterwards, yeah. but I, you know, yeah. I, I know that it's, others have a different impression of it and cigars as a whole world like wine. I mean, there's such a variety of yeah. styles and flavors. No, I, I have, I avoided getting too, too into it. And, uh, but I sure, you know, when I walk by somebody smoking a cigar, it just brings back all the memories. You know, yeah, I, just, <laughs> I like that smell more than actually smoking them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can see that. I can see that too. What about wine? You grew up in the Portland area. Wine was, you know, when you were young, I'm sure was, was really just being developed and Oregon wines were coming out of the world stage. Did wine mean anything to you growing up? No, not, not really. You know, I mean, I, I used to drink that for a bit too. And, you know, building uh, in Walla Walla wine country, you know, it was, <laughs> there yeah. was plenty of wine to be had, but I, I, I haven't really you know, grown into it. I've actually kind of grown away from it. I, I occasionally get sick from it, and so I just kind of avoid it. There's plenty of other great things to drink besides wine. Okay, me, so so you I do just, have vices. I, I love it. I do love wine, but occasionally I'll get sick, like in the middle of the night. Yeah, so that's, I just that's, try to avoid it. Okay, yeah. If it does that to you, yeah, you stay clear. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's so it's been a pretty pretty big year for you. Uh, you know, with last summer the opening of Sylvie's Valley Ranch. And yeah. uh, then the opening of the some of the other projects there as as well. I yeah. so I want to spend some time talking about that. It's such an interesting, notable project, and I you know I'm not sure that the r- golf media 
it's it's been it's out there, but I'm not I'm not sure the golf media and the the you know the retail golfer is aware of it on the same level that they've been you know exposed to Sand Valley, for instance, which kind of opened up during the same same period. So, but how did you meet Dr. Scott Campbell, who's the owner and proprietor of this large parcel of land and and the driving force behind the development? How did that relationship begin? Well, it was it was really a, a funny story. Is um, you know, after Dr. Campbell had purchased the land, he kind of did a bunch of work on it for about a year or two. And then, you know, a bunch of his friends had kind of said, it looks like, you know, a golf course out here, you know. And he, in kind of in the back of his mind, he was thinking of, you know, doing some, some type of resort, whether it had golf or not, he wasn't sure. So he had a, he has a friend in Portland that had actually a plumber that had worked at the ranch and, then uh, worked on some of Scott's businesses in the Portland area. And Scott knew he was a golfer. And so he asked, uh, this guy's name is Vernie Santos. And he asked Vernie if, if he knew anybody that can design courses. And, and Vernie kind of started asking around. Vernie played a lot of pro-ams and knew a lot of golf pros and stuff and started asking around. And, you know, my name popped up very quick. And uh, so um, we had a, we had a sit down in Portland and just chatted about it for a while, Scott and I and Bernie and, and uh, oh, a couple, two or three weeks later, we flew over in a small plane and looked at the site. And, and then, you know, in, in those days, Dr. Campbell lived mostly in Portland and part-time at the ranch. And so we would meet up probably three weeks in a row where we'd sit around and, you know, have a glass of wine or a beer and chat about it. And, um, and it just basically from that, he's, he kind of made me an offer and it took off. That was back in, in, uh, 2009. Yeah. And he had, he was exploring other all options with other architects. Was he not? He did. I, and I'm not quite sure who he's talked to. I, I know he's had at least one other guy on property before he hired me, before I even saw the site. And I, I know he did a bunch of phone calls with, with people and just trying to get a feel for it. And, you know, you know, one of the things that appealed to me and and certainly ended up appealing to him is that, you know, we were right in a downturn there. And that was we had just opened Wine Valley in Walla Walla um, that spring. And, you know, I wasn't sure I'd ever get another golf course. And, you know, I kind of offered to build the thing as well as, as design it, and basically move out there and, you know, be on site, you know, every day of construction. And, um you know, at that time, none of us thought it would take as long as it did to build it. But, you know, it was uh, quite quite the experience. How how difficult do you think it is for someone like Dr. Campbell, who who is not really in the golf business? He's a, a new owner, a new developer who doesn't have experience in golf construction. And, and really, as far as I can tell, very little experience playing golf. He was not a golfer. Yeah. How, how difficult is it for somebody in that position to make the appropriate hire for their projects. Cause I imagine it'd be very easy to, it would be easy to be seduced by a big name or a big company, you know, or uh, somebody who comes in and has all, all the press and has all the, the, the rollout waiting for them and they can fly them around the world if they wanted and show them other proje- projects that they've done. But that didn't seem, wouldn't, wouldn't seem to be the appropriate model for Sylvie's ranch. So how did, how difficult is it for somebody like Dr. Campbell to find his way to you, who is, was the right person for the job? Well, it, that is an interesting thing I've thought a lot about, but I'm not sure if I have a true answer. But he, you know, he had in his in his previous profession, he was he was a basically a 
I mean, he's a veterinarian, but he developed um, 750 pet hospitals. And so he knew how to build. I mean, he knew how to build in the sense of, I got to get all these things done to, in order to put up a building and, you know, a wealth of experience because, you know, he wasn't during that development phase, he wasn't, you know, taking care of pets so much as, as growing a business and, uh, you know, working with contracts and different contractors and all around the country and, you know, even some out of the country. And so he certainly knew how to build and, and, you know, he knows that one, you know, that fine line where you can talk to a contractor for a certain part of work, whether it's on a golf course or a building and it, and it might be a 150,000 bucks and you can talk to somebody else that can do it for 40. And so he was really smart about stuff like that. And so he, he kind of just moves right through all the, all that other stuff and gets down to what he wants. And I think, you know, fortunately I, I matched his model for what he was after. And yeah, I think it's pretty remarkable that he didn't, you know, have one of the big name guys come in and, you know, get the job basically. I think personality will have a lot to do with it as well. You know, he said you, you sh- shared some beers and some wines and hopefully you didn't have any yep. late night <laughs> regurgitations after those meetings. But No, 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 but, exactly. Uh, yeah, uh, but so that plays a part. But but also, you know, he, I think your ability to sell the idea of, of being on site every day and building the course yourself, he, do you get the sense that he wasn't hearing th- those words, that pitch from anybody else? Yeah, I think so. And, um, you know, and I, I know he, that some of the people he talked to, you know, had said, well, we need a topo map and we'll, we'll study the map before we even want to come in, you know, maybe some pictures and we'll study the map before we even make a trip out there and, and look at it. Whereas, you know, our first trip, granted the, the first trip was maybe two hours on the property and we were in a pickup just kind of cruising around on the old roads. And then, you know, fairly quickly after that, probably two weeks. And this is even before he'd hired me, I came out and, you know, spent two or three days just walking the site and, you know, they put me up there and, and, uh, you know, I would just basically spend all day and I did have a real crude map and I was, you know, you know, basically going through that process of, of routing a golf course. And, uh, you know, and I, I think he could, you know, and I very quickly was telling him that, you know, this is, this course is going to be, we just don't have to change much. I mean, we got to find green sites and tees and, you know, do some shaping around those. But for the most part, you know, from A to B down the fairways, we're not going to do anything. You know, we're just going to remove the vegetation and turn it into a golf course. And we don't, we don't need to, you know, blow this thing up and bring in big excavators and dozers and, you know, build containment mounds and stuff like that. None of that. And so I think he, I think because of that, he could kind of see the golf course. And, you know, as we advanced along and I started staking it and doing things to the golf course, he could kind of see that, oh, yeah, this this almost looks like a golf hole already, even though it didn't have anything at the end, you know. It didn't have a tee or a green. And so, now, and that's, you know, that's the beauty of that site is it was, it didn't, it just didn't require much yeah. as far in, in that respect. Were you pretty blown away the first time you saw it? I was, um, you know, and I was, fairly, you know, I, I was kind of nervous just because, you know, you never, you never know if you have a job until, you know, the shovel hits the dirt, so to speak. And, you know, I was looking at it and, you know, I could see this wonderful stuff out there and, and along with it, you know, comes some anxiety of knowing, 
gosh, how do, you know, how do we do this? You know, you're seeing things that, how do we convert this wild sage property into beautiful lush grass and, uh, you know, great playing surfaces. And so your mind, at least mine just immediately goes into kind of operation mode of not even necessarily design yet, because, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't feel like I had to do design stuff. It was more of just figuring out, okay, there's hardly any help. There's, you know, <laughs> what equipment and, you know, what are we going to need and who's going to do it? If I get this, who am I going to have working with me? And so you kind of, I was kind of in that mode really. And then, and then as he and I progressed along and I, you know, because a, a, a lot of it at the beginning was, it wasn't always, Hey, let's just go build a great golf course. It was at first, he wanted me to prove to him that there was a great golf course out there. He didn't want to take this on. He he needed to be convinced. And so, you know, like I said, I, I started doing drawings and, and putting stakes out in the field and spending a bunch of time out there. And, and pretty soon it was like, well, Scott, why don't we just, why don't we just mow this thing out instead of looking at these stakes and huge posts over the sagebrush, let's, see what the ground looks like between that sage. Cause you know, the sage is, you know, it's three, four feet tall and it really hides a lot of stuff. And so it progressed that way where, um, you know, I jumped on a big, well, I staked it. And then the people on the crew there, some of the cowboys and, and his, uh, haying team, they were going to mow the thing out. They couldn't make sense of all these stakes out there. And, uh, so finally, you know, I said, well, let's just, you know, and I couldn't even explain it to him because it's such a big, vast property. So eventually I just jumped in this tractor with a big 16 foot brush beater behind it and basically mowed the, the outlines of the golf course out, which was, you know, that's where the design just started popping into my head of all the details that we could do now, because a lot of stuff would show up in the ground that I couldn't even see before, you know, little ridges and swales and stuff like that. And so it was quite a process. Did that property remind you of any other golf site that you'd ever come across? Well, no. And matter of fact, it was, I kept saying to myself, this is this unlike anything I've ever seen. Um, you know, it, it has, it has definite topography. It has ridges and valleys and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, we just finished at Walla Walla, which everything there was very smooth and it had similar topography in overall elevation, you know, a couple hundred feet through the, through the entire golf course. But at Wine Valley, the you know, a, a ridge would come down and, and it wouldn't end abruptly. It would feather out, you know, 30, 40, 50 feet and just, just slowly transition into the bottom of the valley where at wine or at, at Sylvie's, a lot of the ridges just stop. I mean, just a slope comes straight down to the golf course and would stop. And, um, you know, and it just had lots of different kind of plateaui mound type things that you can see off in the distance and throughout the valley. Cause you can see, you know, three, four, five miles from the golf course, a lot of, from a lot of places you can see down into the big valley and across the other side. And so it, it's, uh, it's just real remarkable land. And, you know, it has Ponderosa like central Oregon, but to me, it never feels like central Oregon, even though that's kind of what it's closest to, you know, in my world. Yeah. Right. So no, it, yeah. And it just, you know, and this is all stuff happening even before the, whole reversible concept came into play. And so, like I said, I, I, I just love the site. I did love the site from, from the get-go, even though, you know, I, I still had worries and, 
you know, I guess that's what I do though, is you get a job and you worry a lot until it comes, <laughs> until you're done. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you worry right up until the, you know, opening day or probably beyond. <laughs> yeah, so yep, yep. so what, what's there now? What opened last year was two different golf courses. You play it one way. There's 18 holes called the Craddock course, and you can play a reverse yep. direction and it's called the Hawkins course. And they share many of the same hole corridors, but then there's a few extra holes that only play on, for one golf course and not the other. Right. So, but right. this whole reversible concept is a, is a very important topic in golf course design and architecture at the moment. And you were onto it, you know, back as you said in as maybe as early as as 2009. Now, of course, the concept goes all the way back to the old course at St Andrews. But yeah, as right. far as I know. I don't know. I'm not aware of that many reversible courses that had ever been built prior to, you know, <laughs> in the last 10 years. So how did you, right. I mean, I know you, you were influenced a little bit by thinking about the St. Andrews and the old course, but how did, how yeah. did those thoughts materialize in your head? What, how did you make that connection? Well, one of them, you know, on, oddly is that, that literally the first day that I discovered golf courses could be built at Eugene country club, you know, my dad was saying, Hey, this used to be the first hole oh, and right, that, yeah. used, and that's going to, and so really from then forward, because I'm, you know, I'm self-taught. I mean, I've, I've never worked for anybody and, you know, I've listened and read and, and, you know, thought about it forever. And, and, uh, but really from that point forward, I would look at golf courses cause you know, I was even at, at that age, I was into it. I mean, I loved golf courses and I drew a lot and I would just keep drawing holes and, but part of it, when I would play a golf course, I'd just look at them all backwards too. You know, you're put on, the, on the putting green and you put it out and, you know, you just look back up the fairway and, and, and just see what that hole would look like, you know, if it went the other way. And so it kind of been in my head, you know, since I was just a little kid, when I got to, when I got to wine Valley and did that project, initially we looked at a, a different piece of land and, it was, it was clear we weren't going to develop immediately that I, that there was going to be time. And so I drew up a routing plan for this other golf course. And, and we actually went out and staked it at one point. And then I went home and, you know, same thing. You're looking at, you're looking at this raw piece of land and you can see, you can look both directions and you can see, Hey, this would be a good hole kind of going this way or, or that way. And so at wine, so even on the first site at wine Valley, which we didn't build, I drew up a reversible course and I showed it to, you know, uh, John Thorsness, who was kind of the idea man for the whole project. And he goes, God, that's just brilliant. And da, 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 da. And pretty soon the, the landowners, we went to the second farm that they had and that's where we ended up building. And it, it didn't really necessarily get into reversible at first, just kind of got, you know, some various routing plans, which, you know, I probably did 25 of them or more because that property was so usable, but eventually be, mainly because we had so much time waiting for permits and the, and the County had to rewrite their rules and regs for developing golf courses and stuff. And, uh, so same thing. I just started drawing cause I had gotten real familiar with Atlanta. It's been a lot of days out there. And so I just kind of drew the same thing. Hey, what about a reversible course? Well, we advanced along and there was a group from Denver that was going to invest in it and build it. I kind of threw it out to them and they kind of looked at me funny and says, you know, your original plan is awesome. It's going to be a great course. 
we really don't think that would be wise. It's just kind of too risky in our mind. It's like, okay, no problem. But we had gone out and staked it. And I'd, I had, I had lived through this in my mind and at the drawing table of, you know, what do you got to do to make it work? And, you know, I'd drawn it. I probably have four or five reversible versions of wine Valley on paper. And I'd actually staked it once just to see what it would look like out on the ground. And so I'd kind of, I felt like I'd almost built one, even though we didn't build it. And um, so then when it came to Sylvie's, again, initially it was not going to be reversible. It was, we weren't quite sure, but we were just trying to get a, you know, a golf course on the ground. And eventually um, it was, I was staying at the Campbell cabin and Scott and I, I'd kind of been thinking about an idea of making part of it reversible, not even the whole 18, but like the middle six holes. So one day, you know, you play six, then six reversible and then six others. The next day you'd play those middle six in reverse. And so I kind of threw that out there and just told him, Hey, you know, I'm thinking about maybe trying to design some holes reversible. And he's same thing, you know, what, what are you talking about? (laughs) And then I told him about St. Andrews and that whole idea. And very quickly, he says, why wouldn't we just do the whole thing? It makes sense for our resort. It's eco-friendly. We'd have two courses on the ground of one. Um, it gives us a story to tell. Do you think you can do it? And so, gosh, you know, I was up at 4.30 the next morning in my truck, heading back to the to the property. and just You couldn't wait right to there, get out there. <laughs> oh, no, it was just awesome. And, you know, I'd already come across the idea you know, and and I've done this on, you know, all my courses is, you know, it's, it's when you're routing the course, if you go totally wide open in your mind, you're looking, you're looking at the property from every direction and you start kind of piecing holes together. And at Sylvie's, it was, there was a numerous amount where I was already thinking, gosh, that hole would be so great going that way. But when I'm down there at the green, looking back, it's like, man, it's so good going this way. I'm going to have to decide one of them's not going to get built. And, you know, I was doing that a lot. And so once that decision came in, in ways it got a lot easier because now I didn't have to decide. Granted, it brought a whole, a whole nother element of things to consider and, um, you know, just design elements that, that I had to work through. But as far as making some hardcore decisions on routing, um, it got a lot easier. In a perfect world, in your perfect, let me put it a different way, in, in your perfect in, in vision of a reversible course, does it entail like a true St. Andrews-style reversible course with double greens where you're playing into the same greens from both directions? Or were you, were you able to like let that concept go easily at Sylvie's Ranch and kind of break up the reversible so it's not a, you know, it's not a true reversible in the, in the sense that St. Andrews is it's, it's, it's kind of broken up a little bit out probably out of necessity, I'm sure. But was that a difficult adjustment? No, not really. Because, you know, one thing, Scott, I mean, he, by that point I had gained his trust. He believed in me and, and, you know, I didn't really have to work hard to convince him to stuff after that. I mean, he liked that idea, thought it was perfect for his ranch and his concept of this eco-friendly resort. And so he really, he really gave me a lot of freedom and, and uh, you know, and I think, I think possibly, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I think 
uh, you know, one element I think that came into play is that I'd never worked for anybody. And so I didn't really have any rules. And, and I kind of felt like I'd done just enough research to know that, you know, there was very little written about it. You know, Hale Irwin, <clears throat> excuse me, Hale Irwin had designed a reversible course in Idaho, but I don't think it got built that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think it ever was played that way, but I think he he laid it out, but then they didn't build the connector parts. You know, they they didn't go from T back to the green. Mm-hmm. They would go from, you know, they would go, you'd finish a hole and then you'd walk through the sage or whatever to the next T and they didn't connect it that way as near as I can tell. But anyway, it basically, I just sort of had this freedom to it. And there, there was really no rules except, you know, the ones that I'd kind of sort of made for myself at, at uh, Wine Valley. And, and so, you know, again, now I have this huge canvas. We had these certain holes, and there's two on the Hankins course that, um, you know, big drop-off. One's a par five, one's a par four. And they just would not be a good hole if you played them in reverse. And so I really wanted to, to play them because they're spectacular and, and, you know, really fun, great holes that, that again, fit to what we were after. <clears throat> and, you know, rather than trying to force something up the hill and make a bad hole go on the opposite, it's like, hey, I don't have to do that. Nobody's telling me what to do here. I, can, I just want to make 18 great holes one direction and 18 great holes in the other direction. And if there's a better hole, a green site that, only works in one direction. Hey, I'm going to put a green there. And just because it was a par four going one way, doesn't mean it has to be a par four going the other. And so, you know, we have a lot of stuff that switches around like that. <clears throat> and really it was, you know, yeah, it's, it's definitely reversible. You know, who knows what true reversible is, you know, the, is it 18 holes with or 18 greens only, or like St. Andrews only has 11 greens, you know, could you do it with nine or could you do a 36 and just have every hole independent with it, with a green on each end of each fairway, which, you know, has a lot of appeal. I mean, certainly it's more expensive, but, you know, from a maintenance standpoint, you could just certainly close one course completely and, you know, top dress and air your greens and do all that. And then, you know, once those heal up, flip flop. So there's, there's a million different ways you could do reversible courses. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if there is a, a standard or there certainly is no standard. No, it's such a a new, new old concept, but I mean, it's been carried out. So, so infrequently, yeah, there, you could really do whatever you want. And you're there with this incredible landscape, this almost an unlimited amount of land to work with. You know I mean? I guess you could make the argument you'd be foolish not to utilize as much of it as possible. And, you know, it might be a bad idea to, to really stick within the same quarters on every hole because then you're, you're wasting opportunities. yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, well, it, you know, it just kind of comes from the design program that you start with. And, you know, and I think that's real important in any of the designs is that the, the architect, the owner, you know, and then, you know, ideal world is a superintendent that's going to be there from day one, you know, until the life of the course, you know, which we didn't do. But if you have everybody on that same page at the beginning and that you are designing you know, with kind of a, oh, uh, God, what's the word I'm thinking? Uh, like a mission statement of what you're after. You know, everything kind of gets a lot easier if you have that. If you don't have that program and it's just like, well, let's just see where this takes us. You know, pretty soon you get you get kind of a scattered design. And, and, and 
you know, that's where like committee design can happen where, you know, you get too many, you get too many people and everybody's trying to get their little bit in there. And, and you can kind of see when that happens, if, if the architect maybe just gets a design in, but then has a, a shaper or two that kind of go off on their own and the owners putting his influence in on it. And then maybe you have a foreman that's, you know, doing too much and, you know, it can kind of get discombobulated, but to have a design program, whatever that may be, I think is real important that, you know, when everybody steps away and that first shot's fired and opening day, you really end up with something that's, you know, complete and together and, and, uh, and works. Right. Yeah. Speaking of a shaping the golf course, I haven't been there, of, of course, but the the shaping looks amazing. Mm-hmm. The, the green contours looked, uh, you know, ravishing, and the bunker work it looks spectacular. What were when you're in a big open kind of high country setting like that? What what are you thinking when you're when you're trying to come up with a, a bunker style that matches the scale of the property and the backdrops and all that? Is that is that an easy concept to nail, or did, did you have to work pretty hard to to get those the way they look? You know the again, it kind of, it kind of, you know, for me, it, for me, design has to happen in three places. And, and I've, I've said this a lot and and I'm sure I'm not the first to figure this out, but I figured it out on my own. I didn't read it. I didn't hear it from anybody else. And it's made sense. And it made sense early on in my career to me. And kind of my only rule is that when I'm designing something, it, you know, clearly it pops in your head first, you got to get it on paper and it's got to fit on paper, meaning, you know, there, you know, it can't go up against a road or, you know, there can't, some logistic issue can't, it has to work on the paper too. You know, it's got to be wide enough. It's got to have room and safety and all these other issues. And then ultimately it has to work in the field. And, and for me, you know, sometimes in the field, you just look at it and you go, okay, boom, there's the green, the bunker, there's going to be a bunker over there. It's got to be big. There's a bunker over here. It's going to be small. But usually I kind of have to grind through that. And for me, it more happens in my head when I'm sitting there drawing and, and just thinking about the property. And it's, it's kind of a combination of each because I've done some that where I thought of it and I fell in love with it and I drew it and it kind of even worked. But when I get out in the field, it's just like, no, this isn't very good. (laughs) You know, I got it. So it's kind of got to be all three. And I like to bounce all three of those off of myself, so to speak, is think of it, draw it, go look in the field and then adjust. And, and really that's, that's the process for me of design. Think of it, draw it, check it in the field and adjust, you know, keep improving, tweak, solve whatever the issue is, you know, is it too steep? Is it too narrow? Is it, you know, whatever it may be. And you just kind of start clicking away on those. And so sometimes it is very easy and, and sometimes it's kind of difficult and sometimes you start to build a bunker and, you know, it's going to be a fairly small rugged thing and it ends up being, you know, kind of big and simple. And, you know, that's, that I think is just kind of staying flexible to it. I mean, I've always had a pretty good understanding, you know, kind of from self-taught through art and everything is just about scale. And, you know, and it's a fairly simple concept once you get it, you know, and most people kind of know it, but maybe they don't know it. But, you know, if you have a huge wall in your house, you don't put a little six inch by six inch piece of art in the middle. You put a big piece of art in it. (laughs) And if you have a big, huge field out for a golf course, you know, you don't put a tiny green with two little tiny bunkers next to it. You can spread out and 
kind of make it fit that immediate environment. And so, well, you make it sound elementary, but it's not. You tr- go around and play golf courses around the world, and you'd be surprised how how, how often scale is is missed. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. But it's I good. That, yeah, it's lot. good that it's elementary to you because you know, especially on a big property like that, you've got to nail that. Yeah, you know, and I mean, I've learned it too. It's it's you know, it's not completely <clears throat> inherent in me. I mean, that I didn't have it as a little kid. I mean, when you know, I learned a ton at Wine Valley. Um, we had great shapers there and, uh, uh, Kai Golby, you know, Bob Golby's son. Yeah. And Dan Proctor. Kind of was there, right? Yeah. And Dan Proctor and, and Brian Caesar. And, and there was a couple early on where, you know, again, my drawing showed something and the, the bunker on the very first hole at wine Valley to the right. Um, I flagged it out and I want to say it was about 25 to 30 yards long and, you know, X amount wide, you know, 15, 14 yards wide or 12 yards wide, something like that. Big bunker on the side of this hill. Well, I staked it out and we kind of, we didn't really do any work, but we just kind of took a piece of equipment and roughed in the edges. And, you know, you go back on the tee and the thing looked like it was a quarter out there. Well, very quickly we said, I said, hey, this bunker's got to get a lot bigger. I'm not sure how big, but a lot bigger. And the bunker ended up 84 yards long. <laughs> <laughs> That's how big it but needed to be. It, 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 exactly. It, and at Wine Valley, that was pretty easy because of the material, the the site. You know, there wasn't a tree on the site. It was all tilled alfalfa. You know, it, it, it had been killed off and tilled under. And so there was no difference. There was no property lines and stuff like that. And so we ended up just extending this bunker around and it curves into the second hole, which, you know, was part of some of the things that I learned when I designed Wine Valley reversible is, you know, one of the things that people always ask me is, how, you know, how do you build a bunker that works in both directions? And, uh, you know, it's like, well, that's pretty easy. <laughs> you just You just shape it in a way that it has visible points on both directions. And, you know, I didn't think that was a hard question at all. And it was pretty easy. And, and actually, it kind of evolved into a, a little bit of a bunker styling that, you know, I think converts to, you know, just a one direction course, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I think I just think there's a ton of things to learn or that I've learned that I, you know, just through doing, you know, first Wine Valley and then this one of, you know, what what can you do when you start thinking about golfers approaching things both directions? And it doesn't have to be geared only one direction. And a matter of fact, I think golf courses don't look quite right if they're too perfect and everything's, you know, bunkers aiming perfectly back to the golfer, mm-hmm. you know, the, the framed golf course where, you know, every, then when you get on the uh, back to the green and you look back, you don't see anything. You just see kind of rises where the bunkers are. Yeah. And and that's fine. There's great golf courses like that. I just don't want to do them. That's all. You <laughs> right, know, there's yeah. enough people that have done them, and there's plenty of them out there. And and I've always been fascinated with with the look of bunkers from a different angle. So you're playing 14 at some course, and you look over and you see number seven, and you see a greenside bunker, but you're looking at it from a completely different angle than from the tee, and it's like, wow, that bunker really looks great from there but it's just boring and plain from the tee. And so I start 
build bunkers that point the wrong way, so to speak, to just to create a different look and illusion and playability. You know, a bunker doesn't always have to be just steep on the green side and, you know, shallow in the back or a big mound on the outside of it, which a lot of, a lot of architects did for years. And, you know, those are, to me, they're just, they're just uninspired and they don't look good. And they don't necessarily stimulate the golfer or make a better course. And so I love to kind of take bunkers and point them a little bit the wrong way. And so now all of a sudden you're playing over the high edge, trying to go around the high edge instead of over it. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it's as uh, I say yeah, it. Sure. Sure. It does. I mean, just, yeah, it's just I mean, taking, it's, a, it's, it's just another artistic application of, of design or painting or anything is it's taking a different perspective, twisting it. I mean, it's, it's Picasso. Yeah. It's, you know, just exaggerating one something that's typically not exaggerated, or twisting it, or turning it, or elevating it. Uh, I think that's yeah, a really interesting so, idea. Yeah, and I, you know, and I think, and I say, you know, I do it to make it look different and do all of this, but you know, ultimately, it's just to make a course that people want to play, that's fun and and you know, inspiring to them, and uh, as opposed to just you know a, another shot over a high face bunker that if they played ten courses a year they. You know, they face it on all 10 of them. Yeah. Or if they live in Florida or Arizona. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, and I mean, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's tons of great courses that have that. But, you know, I, I just think things that are a little, a little asymmetrical is instead of trying to be perfect and, and just show perfect is better. I, I think contemporary golfers have come a long way in accepting what you're talking about and accepting things that are different and, and maybe challenging in ways that they're not used to be challenged. But on the other hand, you know, your average golfer, maybe 80% of the people that play golf, you know, probably, you know, balk at that at least the first couple of times they, they play it. Is that, have you ever encountered that reaction to oh, your yeah. architecture? Yeah. Yeah. To a degree, you know, it's, um, yeah, you know, it's, it, it it is funny because it's, I mean, it's a huge subject and, and it's very hard to define, but let's take greens for instance, you know, for years people built greens that have a green with a tier and generally, generally the tier is relatively square to play. So you, the front of the greens lower and then the back of the greens higher and there's a six or a 12 inch tier in the green. And yeah, when you go play St. Andrews or, you know, I'm watching Carnoustie right now on the TV in my office and, and, uh, you might have a tier that, you know, runs, you know, side to side and meanders through the green. And especially at St. Andrews, you just have bumps and humps and platforms and mounds and stuff in the green. And you just get these shots that, you know, we just don't see at country clubs and golf courses in, in the U S and, you know, I think a bit of the, the movement, the, minimalism movement, you know, that's quite popular now is, is created greens really that people sort of don't have any boundaries and you kind of put ridges and slopes and stuff that, you know, didn't necessarily make sense. If, if the design model is to be standardized, so to speak, which I just hate, I hate anything standardized and, you know, I mean, the mowing is a is a big factor, and I'm so happy now the the world of golf is changing how it's being mowed. You know, for a while, the, it became the kind of the industry standard is to just have rough down the sides of the fairways, 
the rough goes around the fairway bunkers, you know, so there's a little, there's a little line of rough between the fairway and the fairway bunker. And then it more or less either straight line or zigzags its way up to the green. And then it pinches in around the two side bunkers and the whole green surrounded in rough. And gosh, when I was a little kid and growing up on courses, we mowed, but you know, we just used a, used a big gang mower behind a tractor and you mowed, you know, loops around the green and everything was the same height, you know, granted they weren't high end golf courses, but you know, somewhere in the, the U S open sixties and seventies when they started, you know, really defining golf courses with rough, everybody started doing that and pretty much every course did it. And, and fortunately there's a lot of examples now and, and you see it on TV where a lot of the courses have short, short grass around the greens now. And so people are mowing their golf course specific, a specific style to that, to that course, as opposed to just that standard, you know, boring rough left, rough, right, all the way around the green. Yeah. And I think, I think the American golfer, maybe the international golfer, but the American golfer, especially uh, part of this, I don't want to say education, but this sort of like, like the enlightenment of getting the golfer to understand links concepts or the concepts that you're talking about with, with wider fairways or shorter cuts of heights and, you know, no, no strips of rough. Uh, it, it happens at places like Sylvie's Valley or, you know, Bandon yeah. where people go and experience this where they've never experienced it before, if, unless they've traveled to Scotland and they see it at, at this new type of golf, which is an old type of golf, but they see it and they accept it there because they've made the effort to travel yeah. there and it's new and it's refreshing and yeah. it's an amazing site. And then they slowly, they can put that in their brain and take a little bit of that back to their home course, which you know probably looks nothing like that. But I think that's how it, right. how it starts is, is they get exposed yeah. to it in a special setting and, and that starts to break down the barriers that have, you know, built up over decades about what a golf course should look yeah. like. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and your question earlier, I didn't quite answer it, is have I run into people that kind of fought it? And, yeah, to a degree, and it's it's kind of funny, is, is like Wine Valley has really become a tournament course. We play, the Northwest Open has played there for, gosh, probably seven years in a row now, something like that, and it'll be played again in August. It's the best professionals, and we're all the, it's the professionals from the Northwest and, and the amateurs, and they play a lot of uh, Pacific Northwest amateur events there through the years and senior pro-ams and it's very used a lot for tournaments and it's funny how many of my golf pro contemporaries because i'm still a pga pro i was a pro before i got into design and i worked at columbia edgewater but so i know so many of the pros and a lot of them really didn't like it the first few times the greens are pretty wild and, and um you know we build it more of a second shot putting course so that people could drive the ball. There's plenty of room, but it's kind of, it's deceiving. It's very wide, but you, you're much better off coming in it from the correct angles and, and where you leave your approaches on greens is very important. And, but the greens are a lot more wild than, you know, what, what people are used to. I mean, they're, they're banned and wild, but we have really, they're really fast. Whereas banned and greens aren't necessarily all that fast. And so it's not like we're unique. I mean, there's other courses that has have greens like this and, some people kind of rolled their eyes and just thought it was too wild. And so many of those people now, you know, they're asking me about Sylvie's and all this, and they just say, Hey, wine Valley is my favorite course in the world. And I didn't like it. The first, the first tournament I played there, I didn't like it. And then I went back and now I understand it. And it's just, 
it's incredible golf. Is Sylvie's like that? And I said, yeah, I think even more. There's a lot to learn at Sylvie's and there's no dumbing down at Sylvie's, you know, and I, I think, I don't know, maybe I'm going against the trend where everybody says, you know, courses have to be, you know, simpler, easier, faster, or, you know, faster to play and all this. And, and, I, and I do agree with that to a, to a certain element at certain courses, but I also don't, I think great golf is just the opposite of that. It's, it's, it's stimulating and you have to think and it makes you want to come back out again. And, and it's really fun. It's, it's not, it doesn't have to be difficult to do all those things to make you think a lot and, and still be fun. And so that was kind of, you know, the mode at, at Sylvie's it's, it's definitely not as hard as um, wine Valley overall. It's not as long and so on and so forth, but you can probably lose your ball more often, but there's a, there's just a lot to figure out. And a lot of that is because it is a complicated reversible course. I mean, you but you play the first one and then you, you know, you get on the second one. It's like, Oh, that's how that comes together. And then it makes you want to get back to the first one because there's, you know, so I, I think it's yeah. a golf course that reveals itself over multiple plays more and more and more as opposed to just be, you know, one time out perfect. You know what I mean? Framed. One of the other unique things about Sylvie's Valley is kind of how long it took through the development up to getting the golf course opened. It must have been, and, and now you've added a nine-hole course, the Chief Egan course, and the course that's yeah. opening now, McVeigh's Gauntlet. Uh, so first of all, I want to just kind of you know make a note of that. It's, it's pretty neat, I think, for you to be somebody who's been involved with a single project. I know you've been doing other work as well during this time, but, but yeah. really a lot of your attention has been towards Sylvie's ranch over a long period of time, almost a decade. And to be yeah. that involved and to build essentially multiple courses there, it's very Donald Rossi and at Pioneers, you know, your fingerprints are all <laughs> over this, pro- this project and this property for a long time. So that, that, that puts you kind of in a unique place, you know, in Sylvie's ranch and you have a unique relationship now in the golf world. But, I'm really curious about McVie's Gauntlet, and th- from you know what I've heard about it and seen, you've got goat caddies there. It's seven holes. Yep. It's yep. sounds beautifully bizarre. Can you talk about that for a, a minute? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, <clears throat> well, my first trip out there, we didn't go to this particular part of the property because there was one, there was no roads on it, and two, it's you know got this really crazy topography, and so didn't even go out there. Then the first time I drove out there and we jumped in pickups and, you know, I was going to be there for two or three or four days and learning the site and fairly quickly, Dr. Campbell and I, and his son, one of his sons and, and another gentleman, we walked out to this property and walked around and he was, it's very intriguing. There's great views everywhere. And, and Dr. Campbell said, you know, can we build a lot of the golf course out here? And it's really not a big portion of the property but it's very defined by this really rugged terrain. And, you know, I'm, I wasn't officially hired yet. And so it's like, well, yeah, you know, we could go out there and be spectacular and it's pretty small and yeah, but couldn't we go from here to here? And, you know, and, and, you know, in his defense, he didn't understand kind of the scale of a golf course. He didn't realize that we were going to go, the big course was going to stretch out over, you know, basically in a one mile by one mile by one mile triangle. (laughs) And, uh, you know, nearly that big, not quite, but so, you know, once I started drawing, we, he asked about it again and again. And I said, well, you know, Scott, it's, I could have a hole that goes out into this property 
property, then a, maybe a par three, and then a, a hole that leaves the property. But it's you really can't connect anything more than that in there because it's so jumbled. And so he said, okay, well, let's just build a course there later, maybe a little one. Because I said it would be perfect for a bunch of par threes. Okay, well, let's do that later. And <laughs> as we opened the gauntlet the other day, I gave a little speech, and I said, well, now is later because <laughs> here's another course. Yeah. So – I would go up there, you know, a couple times a year and hike around and, and uh, you know, kind of start looking at it and trying to figure out how we would do it and where it would go. And, you know, so was, like you said, we took so long building the big course and, and, uh, and then, you know, I, I kind of built Egan, which is just the nine holer down kind of at the bottom of the course, just below the main course on the way from the lodge up to the, to the retreat or to the clubhouse pro shop. And, uh, I was kind of building that just in the evening and stuff and, you know, occasionally bring crew in there and stuff, but it was pretty simple and straightforward. And so, yeah, eventually as we started getting grasped in and, and, you know, growing in the big course and less to do there, um, it was time to start on McVeigh's. And so just, we started walking around it again and, and, uh, you know, we, he gave me his, his opinion on stuff and, you know, pretty soon I said, well, come out in a couple of days, I'll have it staked and we'll, walk again and I'll kind of have a quick drawing and yeah. And so it was the hard part of McVeigh's was make it really, 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 really hard. Okay. But don't make it too hard. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, so I mean, it was really fun. What is hard? You can't even define uh, that in golf terms. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, so how did you so, interpret that? Just it, make it bizarre, make it strange, make it wild. Yeah, well, you know, and I, I mean, I told him what I thought we should do is, you know, let's not, don't, we're going to, well, at first it was going to just have one par four and that would be the only fairway. Eventually we ended up making a second par four that's, you know, like 210 yards, 220 or something, but we build a fairway for it. So you could, you can either go for the green or lay up, play the hole basically in two shots, you know, 110 and 110 or just go for the green, but it, it becomes a dog leg. If you play it as a, as a, uh, you know, as the, to the fairway. Yeah. And so it was, you know, how big do you make the greens and how much do you give us around, you know, because basically the first hole is just a little Island gr of grass as a tee. And the first hole is like 150 yards up to a green. That's maybe 30 feet above your head. And, you know, it's only probably a 2,500 square foot green at most and about 10 to 15 feet of surround around it. And so you just hit the green or you don't. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was kind of hard of just saying, you know, make it tough, but not too tough. You know, we want somebody to be able to finish it, and, <laughs> um, but, but we don't want it easy, you know? So the, the kind of the push and pull of what, yeah, what are we doing here? How, yeah. how tough is too tough and how easy is, <laughs> is too easy. Just take a, like a, a bushel of golf balls out there with you, strap it onto the goat and, you know, just play Island to Island. Basically. Yeah. The goats have these saddles with these two little carry bags and, uh, they, so they carry for two people at a time and there's some place for some, some beer or pop and, uh, uh, they're on a leash and there's basically just a, a gravel path trail to walk from UT off. And as you get up to the T there's a, a little hitching post for them. And so, you know, their, their, uh, <laughs> leash has a little, you know, a little brass clip and you clip them to there as you, as you go search for your ball. Otherwise they'll just wander off and, and go, you know, nibble stuff all over the area. Yeah. Yeah. And, 
so it's pretty fun. It's very fun, actually. And they're they're very social, and they like to they kind of like to be with you, and you know. So it, yeah, and that it, course just sounds fun. like a like a great diversion. You know, you go out and play thirty six holes on the big course, and then you have these two other options to wind down your evening and take a goat out and drink a beer yeah. while you're playing. That's I mean, that's just a perfect yeah. resort option to have. You know, it's just another. You know, we're seeing more and more of those kind of add-ons to resorts, those little short courses. Yeah. It's a really good. Uh, it's a good trend. Too bad we can't get those in yeah. cities more often. You know, they always have to be attached to some kind of beautiful faraway place. It's hard to get to. And, I know. You know, we need to, every town needs some needs some goats. <laughs> so I wanted to get back exactly. to yeah. Exactly. I wanted to get back to this concept of the reversible course. It's it, it's a, it's almost sense. I sense that it's almost becoming a fad. You know, there's some there's one that's being built in in my in Atlanta, a reversible nine yeah. hole course. You know, Tom Doak's yeah. loop course, you know, opened well, a couple of years ago to, to great acclaim. Yeah. Now, Sylvie's yeah. Ranch has come on. Do you, is, is the reversible concept, is that a viable concept in golf to you? Does it have enough advantages to it to make you believe it's something that we're going to see more of? Or is it something, a wave that's going to crash and pass and we'll just move on to the next thing? Well, you know, I think if we were building a lot more, I think it would be, uh, I think people would be doing it for, for the advantages of, um, that it brings to you, you know, the, the economies that, that you get. And, you know, I, I think it's a perfect deal for a country club and, you know, I would love to try to retrofit a golf course with it. And there's a, there's a couple that I know of in this area that I would love to, that I think that it could happen, uh, not that it could happen that they're going to do it, but I think, you know, if a whole bunch of elements came together and they had the money and time and and foresight, they could convert their course into a reversible. Now, I'm not even proposing it or anything like that, but I do think from a country club standpoint, man, great, great um, marketing to have two courses in one and and still the ground of one. I I don't know if Derek, with the, with the economy and, or the golf economy, I should say that, you know, I, I, I kind of tend to think that had somebody built one, you know, like in 1990, right, <laughs> we probably yeah. would have 25 of them, but nobody did. And, you know, I, uh, that's, that's kind of where, you know, when I was in it, when I was doing mine and, you know, I, I know we started way before the loop started and, you know, I, I really felt, <clears throat> you know, just like, Hey, I'm doing something that really nobody's ever tried to do a big full scale, like, I don't want to use championship golf course, but you know, a big full scale golf course that's 100% designed that way. It's going to be played that way. And all, all these, all the elements are, are there to, you know, to do a kind of a fancy high end place, so to speak. And, uh, you know, as unfortunate, we took so long, but you know, in the big scheme of things, it really doesn't matter. I've proposed it, um, for a two other times already. Um, but in both cases, they're, they're sort of distant projects that I'm not sure will even happen, let alone, would we do reversible? But I, I do like to throw that out there and, and talk to the owners and developers to the idea of here's why, you know, I, and I, I know I could build a, an 18 green one for the exact same price as I could build an 18 hole golf course, no other changes. That's yeah, attractive I, I right back. there in itself. Yeah. I mean, just maybe a minuscule amount more because you're probably going to make 
you're going to make a few more T-tops. But if you use native soil, that's really no expense. I mean, slightly more shaping. Your greens are probably going to be a little bit bigger, slightly. But, I mean, we're talking, you know, way under 20% bigger just to accommodate, you know, two directions. And, and so, you know, kind of why wouldn't you do it? And, you know, you know but, but, you know, not very many people have played them yet. I mean, gosh, until at some point last summer, you know, I was the only person that had played the loop and Sylvie's Valley Ranch. And then we've had a couple of people that have played both now. And, you know, nobody's going to accuse Tom Doak or myself of, of copying each other. They're so dramatically different which started with his program of 18 greens and my program of kind of no rules. Right. And so, I mean, how about a country club that has returning nines and reversible, you essentially, you get four courses because <laughs> you can play, you know. Yeah. Count clockwise, counterclockwise. One, yeah. 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 You could like braid like, it, kind of twist it. Uh, so did you yeah, like so, did you like the loop? Were you impressed by? Uh, yeah, I like I liked it very much. Were you able and, to look at I it was, ob- objectively, or or were you constantly, you know, analyzing on the reversible concept and and the, the against the ideas that you had? How does your brain work when you see like something that's oh, somewhat well, in com- competition? It was it was really it was really interesting because you know I I looked at his drawings which. I couldn't really decipher too much. I knew he'd do, I knew he had used 18 green, you know, obviously he's a great architect and builds great courses. And I, I loved it. The, I went in, I went in nervous going, gosh, I just hope I don't walk out there and say, Oh, how did I not do that? You know? Oh, he thought of all this stuff that I didn't even think of. And uh, I didn't get that at all. He, he did a lot of things that, um, that I had purposefully not done. You know, he has a lot of the, and I'm not even putting it down. I'm just saying he took on things that I chose not to. Right. He has his, his, he has a lot of routing that, you know, literally the greens are nearly 180 to each other. So you come into a green from the back and the front and his routing. So he'll have holes that, and you know, there's not very many that are straight on like that. And he has quite a few that are say the approach at a 90 degree or a, 110 or a 120 type of degree. Whereas, you know, I consciously made our pretty much all our double holes kind of a zigzag pattern. So when, when we have, we have one stretch where we have one, two, three, four, five greens in a row that are um, doubles, you know, on either, either course and those fairways just zigzag back and forth. So, I mean, if you just took your finger and zigzag across the, piece of paper and at each corner you put a green so your approach angles are not that much different from each other you know they i think we probably average you know 40 degrees or something like that or 30 degrees Mm -hmm. and so and that's enough to really make a green look different play different but it's not the same as somewhat having to make kind of a crowned green because you know you're approaching from the front and he kind of picked high spots for greens too which again there's I don't, I don't want to, I'm not, uh, not as a negative, but he has kind of crowned more crowned greens than, than Sylvie's has. So, you know, you, if you hit it too long, it bounces over and goes down the front of the other side off the back, I should say, uh-huh. and then vice versa. And so, yeah. so again, he just had a, he was, he was committed to 18 greens and, you know, 
to make that reversible as he as he's as he sees reversible, not as I saw it. Yeah, and for and any so for anyone who's who wants to be a proponent of reversible courses, it's it would be important to have diversity within that concept, within that genre. You oh. wouldn't want them all to be like the loop and you wouldn't want everyone to look like Sylvie's Ranch. And I'm sure there, there's dozens of variations on that. So it, it, should, yeah, it does I show mean, that there's added possibility there because you can do it in different ways. Oh gosh, it's just endless. And, you know, I'm sure if this guy or the, the next guy did it instead of Tom and myself, they'd probably come up with something completely different, mm-hmm. you know? Like I said, I, and you know, the things he worried, he's, he was worried and we, cause I talked to him quite a bit there. He was worried about, you know, one course being significantly better than the other and that there would be pressure for the owner and whoever to just play one. Well, I want to play that one cause it's so much better. I never even, that never even crossed my mind cause I knew they would be pretty darn similar, but I worried about just building the one or two bad holes. You know, I'm not famous and well-known and I don't have a, I don't, I mean, my business is doing great, but I'm not at that type of level where I'm, you know, getting jobs all around the world. I'm, I work locally and have a ton of work. And so I just didn't feel like I had the, I didn't have the option to screw up. Right. You know, some guys can, <laughs> some guys can, you know, build a bad hole and they're, you know, they're still getting their big design fees and projects, you know, in the pipe. And I just, I didn't have that option. I had to. And and so that really, that somewhat directed me to say, um, Hey, I'm not going to try to force this hole up this hill. I'm just going to go to this other land and attach to the course later, you know, and we have, we have one stretch on the, on Craddock course that we play 10, 11 and 12 that are one direction only. And then they reattach to the 13th hole and, you know, so it's, they're great holes. It was great land to build them. And, you know, it sort of gives each course its own personality by, by having something kind of away from non-reversible, I should say. Right. All right. A minute ago, you kind of made the case for why wouldn't you consider if you were a club, for instance, like putting in the flexibility to play reverse because you could build greens for X amount of cost that wouldn't be that much more than you know building just 18 greens and but that's only because of the way that you build golf courses you and others who are of the design build kind of model um i i know it's important to you to be efficient and economical in a way that Mm -hmm. the larger firms haven't always been just because the way they're set up and all the different layers and um the the use of outside labor and contractors but when you were getting in to golf design, how did you decide that that was the the model, the type of architect that you wanted to be, somebody who was going to be on-site, hands-on, and kind of control everything and, 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 and ha- use small crews? How, how did you come on to that idea? Oh, because you didn't just to reiterate it, you didn't come evolved. up Yeah, you didn't come up through Pete Dye like a lot of these guys did, so you know it wasn't beaten into your brain. No, you know, the, the guy that got me into it was a, one of my old college roommates. His name's Scott Larson, and he's now a superintendent at uh, Emerald Valley, which is a nice club down by Eugene, nice golf course. And he had a construction company, and he was, um, when, I, when I first left Columbia Edgewater and, and started telling everybody I was going to get into golf course design, you know, everybody thought I was crazy. But, you know, one of my first things, I interviewed a bunch of people in the business in all elements of it, and Scott was a, a friend and he says, well, why don't you just come to work for me as a, 
and you can help build a course, which I, you know, I wanted to see how they got built. And so we were going to go, he was building a course in Oregon city, just outside of Portland. And he was going to have me as an assistant, um, kind of a foreman, so to speak, just help the crew basically and keep track of stuff. And, you know, I'd probably end up on equipment, but you know, I hadn't really run anything. I mean, I knew how to drive a tractor and, you know, I knew how to work. I'd spent plenty of time with a shovel in my hand through, through my youth. And, and, uh, but that project got delayed considerably. And so eventually he and I had kind of started a design build idea that he, he, him being a contractor, he would get a lot of calls um, from clubs and superintendents and stuff about building stuff, but with no architect. And so he said, you know, I think we could do that. He says, it might take you a little while to get some experience before people are comfortable. He says, but I think I can talk people into hiring you and then we just, we bid it as a design build and go from there. And so that was kind of the origin of it. And so all the, all the first projects, you know, really his crew was building them, which is, you know, maybe my first five or six little things, you know, a T here and a green there and maybe a couple bunkers there. And, and so, you know, on not having a lot of work, I just spent a lot of time, you know, on site, just watching it get built and, you know, just excited, you know, the the dirt's moving and, you know, just making sure it's right and, and learning a ton, you know, Scott taught me a lot. And, uh, and so, uh, eventually his, his business kind of went away and he went back to being a superintendent. And so every job was, is just kind of different. And, you know, sometimes we, I, you know, a lot of times we do a lot of stuff in the house. We put a project together and the, and the, in-house crew does a lot of the work, maybe not shaping, but irrigation and seeding and sod removal and laying sod and stuff like that. And so every, you know, that's one of the beauties of what I do. And I have so much fun is because every project is completely different. You know, um, Sylvie's, I was on the dozer. I shaped, you know, pretty much everything I had. I had guys that are better shapers than me, but I would do like the, uh, I would do the creative side of it and get it, and then hand it over to somebody and say, Hey, you know, we got to fix these grades and can you clean this up and make that core better and da, 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 da. And, and then, you know, I did all the finish work on the, once we brought sand in and, and, you know, doing all the finish on the greens. And so, and I also had an excavator guy. I'm not very good on an excavator. I mean, I can dig a big hole real fast, but I can't make it look like a bunker. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so I would, again, a lot of times I would rough them either with an excavator or mostly with the dozer and then have somebody that's good come back and make it work and, you know, add some art and creativity and functionality to it that, you know, I just got a hole in the ground. And so uh, there was really no plan for it. It just sort of evolved. Um, and I'm open to projects with, you know, there's not a lot of contractors in this area, but I've worked with three or four up here and a few others elsewhere. And, uh, I'm, I'm kind of open to, you know, putting, putting a group or team together to, to do whatever it takes to make it work. And, uh, and that's part of the fun too, is, you know, meeting guys and working with, you know, various people. And is there, is there any doubt? Through. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, well, right now I'm working on, I, I just was thinking just be, you know, before we started talking that I have like seven projects going right now and in some form or the other. And, you know, more and more and remodel stuff. I mean, I'm working on some of these bigger ones. Um, 
but more and more it's, you know, me and the superintendent trying to, you know, figure out who's going to do what. And sometimes, well, we can't get a contractor for that. Can't get one for that. It's like, okay, I'm on the dozer and I'll, I'll take it for you and then, you know, finish it. And so it, it sort of evolves each time. Some, some, I, you know, get dirty and, you know, rake rocks and pull roots and yeah. <laughs> other ones. I just stand there in nice shoes and don't get dirty. So, well, all things being equal, is there any doubt in your mind that building courses mainly the way you have is more economical to the client than what many other firms have been doing over the last 40 years? Oh yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean you you can definitely build them quicker. Or, I mean, uh, build them for less money, but that that doesn't necessarily always it doesn't always end up being as big as we think it does. <clears throat> Meaning, if a small crew does it, design build, and they take you know three years to build it instead of two that a, a bigger contractor could good, he might open that golf course a year earlier, and so you realize profits sooner and you know in the big scheme of things it might not it might not always be as much as you see as it seems but you know generally it is quite a bit it is quite a bit cheaper i mean i I don't want to lead you both ways and it's just it's on a case-by-case basis Mm -hmm. i mean when i first got started in the business i didn't get i'm trying to get work i had i didn't do much at all i didn't have a portfolio at all and i would bid for jobs um, just cause I was starting to get some. And so my name kind of got out there and I would bid for jobs and I would be a third of the price of my competition. And I wouldn't get it just because they thought, well, he's just not charging enough. And, and I was, and that was, you know, in the early two thousands. And that one, that was when, you know, a lot of clubs and people wanted to sort of brag on how much they spent. <laughs> and then suddenly when the economy started to sour, the world it kind of became there became this whole element of less and doing stuff thrifty became cool and suddenly you know my phone started ringing and once i did enough things that people saw and said well god he did this for you know i did a i did a project for design build the whole deal for one third of the price of the other two architects it proposed and you know, everybody just loved it. And it was at a, a high-end country club here in town. It was a short game area. And next thing I know, all the country clubs wanted me to come in and build it because, you know, even though they have money, they'd still rather spend a hundred grand instead of 300 grand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you can, you can so, start gradually raising your prices too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, <laughs> well, and so what, you know, well, kind of, but what, you know, what happened is the economy got worse and, you know, that's the best thing that ever happened to me, <laughs> you know, cause you know, golf courses are, are a luxury and, you know, generally people at country clubs have money and when the economy goes bad, they don't necessarily go broke and <clears throat> they still want to enjoy their golf and enjoy their golf courses. And, and, uh, you know, as the other contractors that I kind of competed with, not contractors, but designers and stuff, you know, that were, I think, charging way too much in their day they just the phone just quit ringing and you know i was fortunate and i'm fortunate on a lot of levels you know that i i made it through the bad economy and mm-hmm. my business flourished in it and a lot of people went away a lot of people in our area just 
you know, grew old and retired or passed. And, you know, so it went from eight or 10 guys in the area that, you know, somewhat could get jobs fairly regularly to really just a few of us. And, and, you know, like David Kidd lives in Oregon, but we hardly ever compete. <laughs> Matter of fact, I think only once. So, um, he's, he's in a jet and flying around the world and, and I'm working on most of the little country club or the country club work around here. I mean, not exclusively, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's an interesting business how it's evolved and, yeah. and I like to just stay flexible. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of, of David Kidd, um, you know, there's there's a little bit of a comparison between Gamble Sands and Wine Valley. They're they're both in yeah. Washington State. So, I mean, they're not that close to each other, but but sort of in a way they are. Is just yeah. from a competitive professional viewpoint, does it kind of irk you on any level that that Gamble Sands has kind of gotten a little bit more uh, ranking? publicity even for being a newer course than, than wine valley has i think wine valley is kind of creeping up a little bit more now uh do you pay attention to that did that rub you the wrong oh, way do you see the merit in that uh, yeah you know but i'm i'm <clears throat> yeah i mean yes it does but it you know it doesn't make me feel any different about him you know he's i've, I've just recently met him a couple times recently he was out at sylvie's he didn't play it but he was there just to to see the place. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I'd met him in Florida this last at the PGA show it was the first time I'd ever met him. And so, but you know, I see that, you know, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like, you know, there's certain people or, or have, you know, their projects get a lot more notoriety, whether, you know, whether I like it or not. And, you know, I'm not judging it. I mean, I love gamble fans. We had a blast playing it and yeah. it's, you know, I, I feel like wine Valley and that are kind of cousins, you know, they're very similar, I think. And, you know, wine Valley, I think has a little more teeth to it around the greens and stuff. Um, but gamble fans is just such a, you know, it's a, and it was a kind of a breakthrough for him making a simple golf course. that's just really fun to play. And yeah. And, you know, but, but that's just, that's part of parcel of your business, you know, is, is there are, there are names. It's a little bit of a popularity contest to some degree. It always has been to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, his, he has a, a global brand name. And so that, you know, people who rate golf courses or magazines, you know, tend to be attracted to that. It's a self-perpetuating cycle in a way. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, I'm smart enough to know that's, you know, that's, that's been in the world forever. And, and it doesn't mean that, that, yeah. And it's, that's the point. It's not uh, even a judgment on, on quality. And that's, I think that's what would bother me if I were in your position. It's, it's like, it's not merit. It's not necessarily merit based. That's not to say that everybody who likes Gamble Sands more than Wine Valley is wrong. I mean, there's no way to say that, but just the, just the, the spotlight, it burns a little bit brighter. Yeah, you know, and it's, I mean, you know, you can, you can do that with music or, you know, any any type of art, but, you know, certain artists sell a jillion records and become popular and rich and famous. And then there's somebody that just plays far better music on every single level that you've never even heard of. And so, you know, that, that'll always kind of exist. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'd be lying to say that I didn't, I, that I didn't wish I had not popularity, but I just wish that I had uh, the ability and was invited to bid on some of these higher end projects around, you know, around the United States. 
And I love being regional. I would certainly have to change my business mode if I started getting stuff outside the region. But, you know, I just want to build great golf courses. And, you know, if it's, you know, if it's right next door here in Portland, great. If it's, you know, in, you know, Long Island, great, or Florida or wherever, um, you know, I just want to build great golf courses. And and, so how, uh, how is that? What is the, the process or the procedure like about you getting exposure? I mean, are you getting any tastes of that? Uh, you know, I, there are well, so few golf courses and so few opportunities. We talk about that on this podcast all the time about how when yeah. these sites come up, you know, the, there are like four, four or five names that, you know, get first looks. Yeah. And then there's like, there's a dozen or more equally talented people behind them who aren't, who just aren't getting any nibbles. But do you sense, do you yeah. sense any momentum building, especially with Sylvie's ranch being oh, you know a year old now? You know, I hate to say it. No. <laughs> um, you know, I've, I mean, my, I, I literally have had in the last year, year and a half, I've had more work than I've ever had in my life. And at times, you know, overwhelming, looking at ideas for growth, so on and so forth, if it keeps up. But on, on the same hand, I don't think any single one of them came to me because of Sylvie's. I know they haven't, but I think Sylvie's is still, Sylvie's is still a fantasy for people. Um, we've had, some play, not huge numbers. We're going to have like a golf week rating group out um, just a little over a week from now. And we're going to, you know, that'll be a great exposure. We've had tons of media. I really thank our owners for, you know, putting a lot of dollars into the marketing of it. And Kemper Lesnick uh, marketing has done a great job of getting people out there and getting us, getting me in front of people like you and lots of interviews and stuff. But and I have, you know, I'm looking at three, possibly four new golf course projects coming my way. Again, none of them had to, anything to do with Sylvie's. They all started, you know, before anybody's played Sylvie's. And hopefully, you know, the Sylvie's element, you know, solidifies those. The good news with all of those is they're not talking to anybody else. It's really a matter of if they get built, I will probably build them. Mm-hmm. And those are and, all up in the up in the Northwest? Correct. Yeah. Correct. And, uh, well, one of them I've kind of started on, I, you know, so really it's three other ones, but I've started a new project down in Roseburg, a 18 hole course. Um, we're not hardcore, um, construction right now. We're, we're kind of prepping the site for next year and refining our design and stuff, but it, it's, uh, um, you know, great opportunity came right after the, right on the heels of Sylvie's ending. But, um, and like I said, I've got lots of new work. I'm, going to see two new projects in the next week, um, you know, for remodel stuff and, and pretty extensive stuff too, which is great. But, you know, it's, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not, I, I don't, I mean, I hate to say it. I don't think I've gained a bunch of momentum. I mean, I think maybe more people know about it, but the fantasy of Phil, of Sylvie's is until people get there. I mean, we have people, we talk to people all the time and just says, God, it just looks so cool and all this. And, I'm so excited to get there and, you know, maybe next year I can come. And, and yet when we've had the people that have showed up, I mean, they just walk around with their mouth open, yeah. just kind of going, Oh my word. I had the pictures are so beautiful, but it's not even, they don't do anything compared to real life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, maybe when we start getting enough people there and, and really when you get right down to it, um, you know, for, for me, you really just need one person to fall in love with it and hire you. 
you know, you don't need, I don't need a thousand people to say, Oh, this is great. And, you know, let's hire him, let's hire him, let's hire him. It's, it's really just one guy and, and then one guy or one group or one group and then another group and another one. And, you know, it's not like, you know, and, and, and fortunately, you know, my business has grown in that sense. It's, I mean, I don't even have a business card, let alone a web, a website. I know it was hard to get a hold you know. of you. <laughs> yeah. The the phone, but my phone just keeps ringing. And, you know, sometimes, like I said, sometimes it's just a, you know, I'm going to do a green at this public course down in Eugene. And it's, it's one that they've wanted to rebuild probably for 45 years and we're finally going to do it. And, you know, I get as much satisfaction as, you know, just doing a little thing like that, you know, on a little city course that, you know, kind of needs some help. And, you know, there's, there's, they should have good design too. The design itself doesn't cost a penny. It's just whatever you charge for it. Mm-hmm. And so there's no use doing something junky. <clears throat> I shouldn't say that, but you know, the mom and pop fix it often doesn't work or make a course better. And so we're going to, we're going to take their worst hole and hopefully turn it into their best. And so one of the things, one of the things I'm, I'm very interested in is just to kind of back up really quickly, you know, we're, we've mentioned this kind of references before and, and I talk about it a lot is how we made the transition from basically starting around sand hills and through Pacific yeah. dunes and into um, what, you know, this certain style of architecture, you can call it minimalism, naturalism, doke core. Yeah. And, and it was definitely not everywhere, but it, but at these new expansive sites around the world, there's a, there's a type and a style and a philosophy of architecture that's become predominant as far as greatness is concerned. And we've, mm-hmm. uh, and, and my contention is this neoclassical period that we're in has almost leveled off a little bit and we'll continue to see great sites and we'll continue to see more of the same as these, these great sites are being developed to the extent that they are. But there's, we're also kind of in this waiting period where we're waiting to see, okay, how do we take this in a new direction or how do we tweak it or how do we apply this model of golf in a broader sense to different sites per, I guess you could say. So with that in mind, I'm getting, you know, you're, you're somebody who has a lot of ideas. We talked about how you are interested in, in changing perspective and turning bunkers and just giving different vantage points to a line of play, for instance. Do you have, I, I mean, where, how do you, how do you feel about that? Do you sense that we're at this moment where we can, take what we've learned and go in a new direction or do you, and specifically these projects that are coming up for you, are you, do you feel like you're going to have an opportunity to take a a step and advance kind of your own art form on these sites? It's Um, a long question. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, no. I understand. I understand. And it's, it's, you know, it's, you know, part of the whole movement of, just from a partial perspective of this thing of, you know, from Sand Hills to Stream Song to Sylvie's to Wine Valley and Gamble and Bandon and all these is, you know, we started, we started building golf courses on true rugged land as opposed to just right next to cities. And, you know, even, even though, you know, like Pumpkin Ridge, a 36 hole place in our area, um, you know, built in the early nineties, Bob cup, you know, won awards, tried to get a U.S. open there, played a U.S. amateur there. Mm -hmm. Great, great facility. You know, it was farmland and and it just wasn't rugged. It had kind of been farmed out and, and, you know, so it developed in the early nineties and, you know, it has a a certain style of parkland golf courses with, 
you know, in the open areas, it's kind of containment mounding and so on and so forth. And it's great, great golf course. Both of them are very good. But, you know, once we started going out, you know, 200 yards from or 200 miles from a city or 100 miles from a city, you get into land that had never been anything. You know, it was in its natural state, which breeds to build a golf course, at least in my mind, you know, like you just wouldn't go out there and build, you know, a, you wouldn't take sand hills. Well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that because a lot of guys have gone out there and built, you know, that containment mounding style golf course on great sites and sort of disregarding the, the natural elements of it. Something, so, in, something in coastal Oregon, perhaps. Exactly. <laughs> there, there you go. There you go. And, you know, that was their model at those times. That's kind of what they did is, you know, bring out the equipment and flatten the fairways and build some mounds on the sides and, and uh, around your greens and, and just move on to the next site. And uh, that sounds like a slam, but that was really kind of where we were. And then, you know, Sandhills really, really did change all that. And, and so, again, you know, even the courses um, – so back to your question is, oh, for sure. I mean, this project in, in Roseburg, I'm, it's, I'm incredibly excited about it because it's not by any means a great site. There's very little naturalness to it, but there is, there still is some naturalness to it. It's going to be on a river and it's a, currently it's a sand and gravel quarry, relatively flat ground. It's not, it's not abandoned or, uh, um, Chambers Bay on the side of a big rock quarry like that. It's, it's flat ground. It has a bunch of square ponds on it that we're going to, that that's kind of some of the stuff we're working on now is to round those off and make them into better golf shapes, but it's going to be a very short course. It's probably going to be par 70 with six par threes and four par fives. Um, you know, it'll probably only tip out at 6,300 yards. It's going to have a bunch of really narrow holes on purpose. I could make them wide, but going to make some real narrow ones that are fun, short, you know, 300 yarders. Mm -hmm. And it's going to have a 600 and some yard par five. It's going to have great diversity. And I, and you know, at first I think people are going to say, well, how hard or how good can it be when it's only, you know, 6,300 yards. Not at all. That's exactly I, what oh, what we crave. Yeah, yeah, and it's. I think when you look at when you put when you put six par threes out there, you're losing 150 to 200 yards a hole, right? To the to the scorecard with a par three, and so your yardage gets short just because of your your makeup of pars. And uh, you know, but I, you know, we have a 470 and a 450, and you know a 285 and a 310 and par threes from a hundred. And I think there's one at about 120 right up to 220 and kind of, you know, blended in between there. And so I'm really excited about it because it's, it's all design. You, you wouldn't walk out there and go, Oh God, this is just going to be awesome. This is going to be incredible. But I think I can make something that has a little bit of that, whatever you want to call it, new idea to it, even though it's going to have water all over the place, which is just even more exciting, you know, because right now water is not, a, people don't like water on golf courses and, and it's just only because it's been done so many times the same way, you know? Yeah. 
water right next to the green. And so I'm trying to just make that where the water's there and, and you kind of feel like you can get around it without hitting the water all day, even though some people will, you know, just a different, just a sort of a different attack of, of how golf sits next to water. <clears throat> and, uh, and it, on a, you know, on a, still, yeah, on a shorter course like this, not short. I mean, cause I think I know you, I know you can make a 62 or 6,300 yard golf course, play like a long golf course you know you kind of like like you just said you eliminate like those mid-length par fours and you go really short par fours Mm -hmm. really long par fours you can make the par threes whatever you want you can have as many par fives as you want you can make the par fives really long but do you do you feel though because it is a little bit um it doesn't have the the card length are you going to continue with the style of greens that you're becoming known for is having some 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 significant movements we'll say yeah um but but Toned down from from Wine Valley and and uh, Sylvie's for sure, yeah. um, because it's it, it's a going to be a daily fee golf course. Um, it's it's gonna it's near I five in Roseburg, um, two or three miles away. <clears throat> It'll have public play. Um, I'm not sure if we'll even do annual members. It's I think we're a little uh, we just haven't worked through that yet. But um, we're gonna have an RV park, kind of the, the new glamping. Mm-hmm. RV world, you know, of, of young people. So we're trying to get that in line too. That was, that's part of the redesign stuff that we're kind <clears> of <throat> working on is, is, is get that interface between the, the RV park and the golf cart park, golf course parking and how that interfaces with the edge of the golf course. Um, you know, one and nine and 10 and 18 greens and clubhouse site and how those all intermingle. Um, but um that sounds amazing though i mean i'm charged up yeah this is what i've been i've been talking about this for a while now about the, the need for the, this uh, kind of what you're describing the public golf course yeah. doesn't have to be long and it, it it has significant architectural features as well uh so yeah you know and affordable yeah. that, I'm, I'm assuming that's a that's a great way to describe it because yeah i want to have some movement stuff but i, I you know I, we want to be able to get people around and but i want people to get on the green and go wow look at this putt. this is gonna be fun you know, but maybe not, maybe not a whole bunch of, of, uh, compound lines, you know, where the ball might break two directions and, you know, and really deceive you, you know, you might not play enough break and you might, you know, lose it to the low side, but it won't be one where you hit it on the wrong side of a ridge. And instead of going right, it goes left and rolls 18 feet away. You know, you might miss it by four feet on the low side, but not 18 feet, just totally being fooled like wine Valley can sometimes do to people. <laughs> yeah. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited just because it's different. You know, yeah. I love, yeah. I love every project I've done, but this, this one's going to be, you know, just has a hell of a lot of architecture to make it into a good course. And yeah, it's, it's really exciting. Yeah. It'd be so boring to be Tom Doak and Bill core. I mean, how do they, I don't know how they do it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. Dan, we'll start we'll start to wind this up. Um one thing okay. I, I think about a lot is we talked about Sandhills a second ago. Have you ever thought about if you would have and you mentioned, you know, if maybe if in nineteen ninety we'd been building reversible courses then there it would, you know, just be part and parcel of the architectural uh catalog right now. But do do you ever th- think or posit like what if you got a job in nineteen ninety? What if you were building golf courses back then? Do you think you would have had the the same aesthetic the same sense of style and and temperament that you do now 
Would, or would you? Or would you? Is would have been it possible um, to break out of that the mode of that era? You know, um, that's a great question. I've never thought of that. That's an awesome question. And you know, I like to think that I would have, but I think it, I probably would have been influenced by sort of just who was around at the time, so to speak. You know, whether it be a superintendent or a co-designer or um, you know somebody would have been there that could have influenced that. You know, I, I do think, I do think if I stepped on a site like Bandon crossings, it would have been pretty darn close to what we built. Mm -hmm. Now I may have added this and that and got better as I went, you know, but I've definitely, you know, even in, I mean, I, I kind of love all golf courses and I think there's great things to find on just about all of them. I mean, one of the really big influential things is when I first turned professional in 1984, I went and qualified and played on the Australian tour, not very successfully, but I did make it through their tour school and then played, you know, for three or four months there. And so I did get to see a lot of McKenzie courses and, you know, they played Royal Melbourne, the composite course and Royal Adelaide and, and Titarangi over in New Zealand and, and, uh, para, para, uh, para para umu and and i definitely i mean i have drawings from those that trip where i would draw kind of those holes out mm -hmm. i'd play one and just think about it that night and just get out my sketch pad and, and draw it out there and so i i kind of think you know that was in the mid 80s i kind of think i would have kind of gone that direction but you know i think the site would have had a lot to do with it if it was a good site you know in the sense that not a flat barren piece of ground that you know kind of most people would have just built like i said the the containment mound style golf course yeah um yeah i don't know that's a great question to to ponder well what is the the best modern course not yours but any of yours but what's the best modern course that you've seen that just fits your eye oh um well, I love everything at Bandon. I like them all. Um, you, you don't have a favorite? I, you couldn't well, say? Well, yeah, I do. I do. and uh, the, I mean, my, I think my favorite is Pacific. I really love trails. I think my least favorite would probably be would be Old McDonald. I, I think, you know, I don't want to sound like a critic. I mean, it's an awesome golf course. and I just think you can kind of tell that a whole bunch of people have their hand in on it, and it, it just it feels like a big copy as opposed to something original, even though it's very original, it's very different of their copies, but uh, you know, and I, it, it's still a wonderful golf course. Correct. Yeah. And that's, got, that's, a, bit, that's are, a bit of my so, critique of it as well. If, if anybody's interested, yeah, the other ones are so, yeah, the other ones are so homogenized to each, you know, Pacific, just all the elements are perfect for Pacific yeah. and band in the same way. Everything just, you know, it really just works and trails the same way. Whereas, you know, old McDonald, it just felt like, you know, and I, I'm, I shouldn't even say this, but it just feels like, you know, guys, you know, moving their hands back and forth. Oh, now let's do one of these. Oh, let's do one of these. As opposed to maybe just, it didn't, it just doesn't feel quite as continuous as me. And, and that's, that's getting real critical because it's, I'd love to have built it. <laughs> it's an underrated piece of ground too that's i always thought well, you know why not just yep. build a great golf course there but you know i know mike kaiser wanted 
to do that. So, you know, it, it yeah. started with the owner. But it would have yeah. been interesting oh, to sure. see just if, sure. if to let Tom Doak or you or, or somebody else just, you know, do the whole band and original thing there instead of the, the template concept. So do I, can I put yeah. you down for Pacific Dunes, or did you, or were you working your way up to something else? Well, I'm I'm trying to think my way through, and and you know, most likely that's it. I mean, the you know the courses that really influenced me were <clears throat> was um, you know Pacific was in the ground before I started. Um, actually, old uh, the original course Pacific and um, trails were in the ground when I started it at Bandon Crossings. And, you know, people have said my course is a lot more like trails, but really that's just because we're back in the trees. You know, probably that. I'm trying to think. I've played, I've played just one of the courses at Stream Song. Um, you know, I don't play all that many. Um, you know, I, I, like, I like Chambers Bay, but again, it doesn't, to me, it's not with Bandon overall. Um, yeah, probably Bandon, but, you know, even Eugene Country Club, you know, it really hasn't been touched since 1968. They've been doing a little bit of tweaking and, um, you know, I just love that golf course. And even though there's hardly anything on it that I would do from scratch. Interesting. It's still just, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, it just has a, it just sort of means something to me because of what it is. And anyway, I'm not sure if I answered you, your question no, very no, well. No, absolutely. Pro- it's- probably Pacific, but not in a runaway. I mean, you know, I'll tell you another course that really, really influenced me at the time was, and it was about when I was making a career change was the core and Crenshaw course in uh talking stick. Yeah. In Scottsdale. Yeah. A brilliant course. I mean, I've, yeah, I played that thing and just thought, Oh my word, look at this thing. This thing is so cool. You know, and just the, just the subtle stuff that most people don't pick up of, you know, very soft edges to the T's, you know, no, if a tee's elevated, you can hardly tell. They they shaped all around it and made it very soft and really tie that in. And just those little subtle things that that uh, <clears throat> in the prior era didn't do. They just okay. There's going to be a tee over here. Okay, let's make it three feet tall. Do a four to one slope around the edges and kind of make it look like it's engineered out there. And and uh, whereas talking stick has so much just nice little subtle stuff around it and just little rolls and twists and turn. And I think on paper, one of the courses that would probably uh, be my favorite, just looking at the pictures, but who knows, I might not like it when I was there, but would be Friar's head. That one really looks like a out of Long Island. I agree. I, I think if, if you told, if you ask me, I get to pick one course to go play right now that I haven't played before, you know, and, It'd be you know Pine Valley Cypress. I, I might pick Friar's Head. That might be the one that I pick first. Yeah, I had an opportunity to go there about oh gosh, it's probably been five six years now now and turned it down and and kind of kicked myself and and part of that too is you know spending quite a bit of time with Dan Proctor and uh, mm-hmm. and you know and I, I've 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 really never hung around with a lot of architects at all. There's you know. I mean, a little bit with John Harbottle, who was up here, but has passed, and you know, a few of the older guys I talked to up here, but they're all—they've all gone on. Right. And but I have spent a bit of time with Bill Coor, like three or four different times, and got to walk the preserve with him and trails with him when when they were building there, and and but really just spending time with Dan Proctor and 
and then meeting Dave Axland, <clears throat> excuse me, Dave Axland. Right. Um, you know, and just listening to those guys talk about how they do stuff. And, and I just got to believe that, you know, Friars had, I just can't imagine not loving it. <laughs> you know, the pictures just really intrigued me and, and the thought process. And, um, and that's one of my goals is some hate some day to find the right project and bring, uh, Proctor and Axlin and Hickson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, that would work. That would be us. awesome to see. Yeah, that would be fun. I, I, but I do have a site in mind that I've talked to the people and we'll see, but you know, I, 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 Dan Proctor came out and saw Sylvie's last summer and I hadn't seen him in, you know, six, seven years. And so it was just great to catch up with him and, and, uh, and Axlin really, I've just spent a little bit of time with him. Actually, when I went and played the loop, um, I played in the, in Doak's tournament up there and he was there also. And yeah. so, um, that'd be really fun to do a tournament yeah. uh, project with them. But, He's a good guy. But then they would say I was copying core and Crenshaw. So, well, that, that kind of brings me into my next question is let's say that you had an opportunity to pick your spot where you want to build a golf course and it can be anywhere in the United States and you can go to Canada or Mexico too, if you have a specific location, but where would you most like to build a golf course? Let's just say there are no barriers. You just get to get, pick the site. Where do, would it, where would it be? Oh, I, I think for me, it would be on the Oregon coast or, or the Southern Washington coast. Mainly, you know, I'm, I'm different. I've had people, I've had an, one opportunity to get involved in some stuff overseas in Asia. And I, I really, it, I mean, it was, it was probably never going to happen, but I had, I really didn't have any interest and I would love to work anywhere in the U S for that matter. But I really like, I really like courses that I can go play. I don't want to like Sylvie's is five and a half hours from where I live. And so it's hard to go play it. Yeah. And, uh, wine Valley's about just under four hours and, and Bandon is a little over four hours away. And then I did a nine hole course on, in Waldport, Oregon on the coast. Um, it's, you know, three and a half from here. And I'd really like to build, <clears throat> I'd really like to build something within, you know, one and a half to two hours of where I live and be able to do that. And I, you know, the Oregon coast has thousands of great sites for golf. And, you know, some of them may be covered in trees right now. And there's a, there's abandoned dunes type piece of property sitting out there. It's just in forest, but mm -hmm. sand and all that. And, you know, so I, I guess anywhere there's sand, but I'd, I'd really like to, I'd really like to build one where I can go play it a lot and my friends can go play it. I don't have any desire to go build one in China that 10 years from now, two people I know have played it, you know? And I, I think that's, that's important to me is this, that, you know, I'd love for, you know, my friends and family and, acquaintances and you know so, you know big world of golf here in Oregon that I know that they get to play it and uh you know there's some satisfaction to that I mean not that I wouldn't want to you know turn down a project at any of these other great sites that are <clears throat> around the United States but I'd I'd say Oregon you know the Oregon coast or I'm very sympathetic to the idea of having a great golf course within a you know a local a local location a drivable distance I don't really have that yeah. where I live we started off talking about your dad. I yep. know that he was a big collector of golf clubs as well. Yes. Loved golf clubs. What was your first set of clubs or your favorite set of clubs when you were growing up? Oh, you know, the, the, I think the first time I really loved to hit a ball well. I mean, I had I always had hand-me-downs, um, you know, with older brothers and sisters. And, um, you know, we just 
when it was, when they got rid of the set, if it was too long for me, we'd cut it down and put new grips on and that would be my set. And, uh, <clears throat> but when I really started loving it is when I just got old enough and granted it was, it was, <laughs> it was way before custom fitting, but I would go caddy for dad and, and various tournaments and I'd often take his clubs out on the range and, you know, I'm 10, 12, maybe 13, 14 years old, you know, skinny as a anything, not very strong. And I would take his Hogan apex fives out. <laughs> That's nice. their extra stiff shaft. Right. And I just love to hit those. And I still use a probably too stiff a shaft for me. I just always have liked something really stiff like that. And so, and he was a Hogan man and, and, you know, I was a Hogan guy most of, most of my time as a pro. And I'm not using Hogan now, although I still have a set in my garage. That was my last set. I just have replaced them. But I've it just, you know, those, the old Hogan stuff, you know, whether it was uh, my own or, or my dad's, you know, some version of his, we, we often played them. And I used to joke after I'd left Columbia Edgewater, I was on the Hogan staff when I left there. And they were still making a pretty decent golf ball in those days. And that was really before golf balls boomed, you know, and sure. that's just when the pro V and stuff was getting started and all oh, the rep had given me, you know, quite a few dozen. And so I just kept playing them, you know, and I'd play with friends and other golf pros and we were playing at wine. I think even into wine Valley, I still had some of those <laughs> balls and, and I would play them and guys would just make fun of me. Just totally. look at you. Yeah. You know, they would just say, you know, golf balls have come a long way since you're Hogan. And, and I would just, I would say, hey, I love the font. Yes. <laughs> hey, you know, your golf ball should have a, a style to it, a personality. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and then I'd say, well, you know, I'm two under and I think you're plus four. So maybe you should switch. Yeah, maybe we should switch balls, see what happens. Yeah. But so I'd say Hogan's, you oh, know, and yeah. but dad was great. He was, he collected everything. He started over at Crooked River Ranch that's where he retired from, but he started the hickory shaft open there. You know, he had, you know, 30 to 60 guys coming over there for about eight or 10 years playing with hickories. And I played in that a couple times with them. And uh, that was just great fun watching big, strong guys, you know, just blow the head off of a hickory because they're using a hard ball and, you know, swinging it 110 miles an hour and the club just exploding right in front of them. And it was quite a learning experience for us, but that was great fun. That sounds great. Yeah. Are you still a, uh, do you change out your equipment a lot or have you found something that you continue to use? Um, no, I, I switched to the, I switched to a blade, this Cerixon iron and I've, I've just been playing terrible this year, but really it's just cause I, you know, I'll play two rounds in three days and then I don't play again for another four weeks. And, and, uh, I, I do like to tinker, but I'm just kind of too busy to tinker now. And, and certainly no practice time at all. No, you know, if I hit five balls on the range before I tee off, that's that's a practice session. Yeah, find it so, as you go. I wish I, uh, yeah, I, you know, and again, it's it's uh, I can kind of play just about any course around here I want, but you know, it's just been busy. Lots of lots of golf design projects going all the time that kind of keep me from uh, off the course. No, that's good. It's preferable, I'm sure. Well, Dan, this was fun. Yeah. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I had a good time. Good, me too. I enjoyed it. It was it was a lot of fun. Some some thought provoking questions. Good, good. Um, any other projects at Sylvie's, or are they done over there? Uh, for now, we're done. <clears throat> we may we may add to the gauntlet. We, there is more ground that we could add holes and you know take it up to eleven or something. <laughs> and uh, 
Um, but you know, nothing in the nothing in the immediate future. We'll keep an eye on that and uh, other projects that you're involved in. Good luck with the the rest of your role out there. And it was fun. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Derek. I appreciate you. In case you can't tell, I am pumped about the idea of goat caddies. (laughs) Right now, you have to go to Sylvie's Valley Ranch and McVeigh's Gauntlet to get a goat caddy, but I really want one. I want to go back to an earlier part in the interview when Dan spoke about getting started in the business and he was actually losing jobs to other architectural firms and individuals because he was too affordable. I do believe there's an actual economic theory that supports that phenomenon. I'm not an economist, but I call it the Silver Oak Principle. Back in the late 90s, I worked at a high-end restaurant in Boulder, Colorado. I was the wine director and a sommelier. The owner had amassed one of the country's biggest wine lists. It was one of the few restaurants at the time that that had earned the Wine Spectator Grand Award. We had literally like maybe 2,000 bottles on our list and thousands of bottles in the cellar. And we had verticals of of most of the great wines in in the world. One of the wines that we had a deep vertical on going back into the early 70s was Silver Oak. Silver Oak now, but maybe more so in in that time frame, was kind of a cult wine. You rarely saw Silver Oak outside of a restaurant wine list. Now, they made a a Napa Valley bottling and an Alexander Valley bottling and a single vineyard bottling as well. But we would get people coming into the restaurant who knew what they were doing, knew wine, would see Silver Oak old vintages and order them. Of course, we were happy to sell Silver Oak, but we were actually more interested in protecting our verticals. We liked the fact that we could have vintages going back into the 70s and the 80s. So when we would sell a bottle of, say, the 1978 Alexander Valley, we would and notice that maybe we only had six bottles left, we'd go ahead and raise the price. And we did that basically to protect our inventory. And of course, we were, we were happy to sell a bottle, but we just wanted to sort of almost deter the clientele from buying certain bottles. But what we noticed almost invariably was every time we did that, every time we'd raise a price, take it, take it from like $250 a bottle, which is an outrageous amount of money to spend on wine, and bump it to maybe $350, we'd sell even more. It was almost as if we couldn't price the Silver Oak high enough to deter the clients from buying it. So in essence, the higher we priced the wine, the more value we created. We, it, it looked more valuable and more precious at a higher price point than a lower price point. In retrospect, maybe we should have lowered the price of certain vintages, and that would encourage the diners to, to look at other vintages. But we just kept raising prices, and we would sell invariably sell more wine. So that's why I call it the Silver Oak Principle. You can create value by pricing your product at a higher level. Now, of course, that doesn't work for everything. The product has to already be in high demand, but you can almost increase demand artificially by raising its perceived value through pricing. So that's what, that's what, that's what I thought of when Dan talked about that. He should have priced himself actually higher, thereby creating the illusion that he was in higher demand or had a, a higher intrinsic value. But he's doing okay now. It sounds like he's doing great. And I'm particularly interested in hearing more about the Roseburg Project If any of you know about courses around the country like Roseburg, let me know. We talk about that on this show quite a bit, the need for more public, affordable, easy access, shorter golf courses. And it's encouraging to hear that at least one is being built in Oregon. And if we didn't know about this before now, there are probably others out there too. So if you hear anything along those lines or you've got your ear to the ground, let me know. I'd be interested in hearing more about those. But I want to thank Dan Hickson. What a good guy, good guy to talk to. We appreciate him spending time with us. And just as the obligatory public service announcement. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio or Google Play. If you'd like to leave a star rating or review on iTunes, please do that. You can also leave commentary or get a hold of me at feedtheball.com. I am on Twitter and Instagram at
at Feed the Ball. Thanks for listening. Thanks to the Sundogs as usual. Stay tuned. We've got more episodes upcoming. And until the next time, cheers. Cheers.